The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Jack Wilson. Welcome to another edition of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We have a fun one today. The Return of Mike Palindrome After many months, he and I go through one of our longtime passions, the films of Alfred Hitchcock. We choose the 10 best Hitchcock films. That's coming up soon. So, why Alfred Hitchcock? And why now? The now is easy. It's October. October is the perfect Alfred Hitchcock month. When the leaves are starting to turn and the wind is starting to pick up, and it's getting dark a little early. When my son was little, he asked me why it was so dark out in October, and I said, Ah, yes, it's because it's October, and in October, it gets dark early. And he said, Dark early is not a word. Well, maybe it should be. There's dark, and there's darkly. And for Alfred Hitchcock, there's dark early. There's also a lightness of touch. There's suspense. There's an exposure of the twisted side of humanity. But there's also humor. He's closer to Agatha Christie than Stephen King on the scale of in-your-face thrills. He's going to excite you. He's not going to turn your stomach. Put it that way. And as I've grown up, I've come to view him as a supreme filmmaker right there with Wells and Scorsese and Kubrick and Ford and Kurosawa and whoever else you want to choose for your pantheon. When he was doing it well, Alfred Hitchcock, there's no one who did his particular kind of movie better. They still hold up. There's still a fountain of pleasure. There's still a source of deep admiration. They're like the best late 19th and 20th century paintings, the Monets and Van Goghs and Picassos and Pollocks and Rothkos, hanging there to inspire our contemplation, to absorb our reverence and awe, to give us something to take home with us to consider. I love Alfred Hitchcock films, and so does Mike. And so we spent some time talking about what we like and why. We'll have that conversation after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now for a look at one of the greatest auteurs in the history of cinema, a.k.a. Alfred Hitchcock, a.k.a. the master of suspense, is our old friend Mike Palindrome, a.k.a. the master of podcast guesting and the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So I'm not sure why this topic came up for me now. I think I go through a Hitchcock phase every few years or so, and I just think all over again how good these movies are and how much pleasure they give me. And I know you're a fan of Hitchcock, too, so I thought I'd invite you on to talk about our 10 favorite Hitchcock movies. We're going to do this as a draft, five each, and why we like them. So, Mike, do we need to make the case for these movies as literature, or can we just take that for granted and move on? (laughs) Funny you should ask that, because I just, you know, as much as I love Hitchcock or... Any other filmmaker, to me, it's definitely not literature. It's, well, the definition of literature it usually has something about the written word. So I guess you could say the screenplay might mm-hmm. qualify. But really, with Hitchcock, even though one of the things I love about him the most is his sense of story and his commitment to just the, the delivery of the story. But we're not talking about screenplays here. We're talking about... The look of them, the score, the acting, the whole the whole kit and caboodle. So it's a lot more than just the screenplay. I, I just feel like you can watch a movie and be the laziest person on earth. Mm. And yeah. you can't read a book and be lazy. And that as as fascinating as films can be and as entertaining and educational, they're really nothing like literature. They don't like when I finish a movie, I feel kind of woozy and strangely empty. Yeah. When, when I, you finish I, a book. I never feel that when I finish a book. Yeah. When I finish a book, I'm ready to do other things. I'm ready to like run outside. And there's something about <laughs> film Howl that, at the moon and, and yeah. rip off your shirt and let the rain pour down on your chest. I, I think films, you know, <laughs> are meal substitutes. Yeah. The meal being <laughs> literature and... And, and the other thing is they, they require no patience. They, they're they actually bad training. Mm, right. So I, like I studied with a well-known fiction writer who told me that this was back in 2002 and somebody was recommending a film to him and he just kind of grimaced. And, and I said, you know, what's the last film you've seen? And he said, this is in 2002. He said, 1985, The Bride of Frankenstein with Sting <laughs> and Jennifer Beals of Flashdance. <laughs> A flash dance. Yeah, and uh, I, I knew he had only seen that because he was a big Mary Shelley fan. Mm, 
Well, I am going to stick up for film and say that I think the experience <laughs> of film can be uh, much richer than I think uh, you seem to have been giving it credit for. And I, I've been powerfully moved and I've been engaged. But I agree, we don't need to uh, we don't need to to quibble over whether the definition of literature includes film or not. We can celebrate both on their own terms. And with Hitchcock, I've got a couple of stories that I wanted to give to sort of set the table for Hitchcock. But before that, I just wanted to ask you if you've always been a fan or if you remember the first time you were watching Hitchcock. Yeah, so the my first Hitchcock was actually shot Psycho. Mm, wow. Yeah. and Jumping I Jumping right in on the deep end. Yeah, I was like 11 or 12 years old. <laughs> was this was, on PBS or something or at a theater? You know, I was part, my parents were part of this like monthly Korean social club mm-hmm. where they, each month we all gathered at someone's house Yeah, and some teenagers had Psycho on and a bunch of us just kind of sat in the back and watched. Yeah. You think they had a, <laughs> a VHS tape of it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the parents are all uh, are all talking and and what cooking, playing mahjong or something, and the kids are all watching slasher movies in the other room. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, I I just remember distinctly that uh, we saw Psycho, and then at the end of Psycho, one of the teenagers just talked about how evil the Vietnam War was, and I I went home thinking like, wow, that was like a really interesting party. Yeah. But just in case people aren't clear, the Vietnam War would have been over for 10 years or something at that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just like this bit of propaganda this from like a 17-year-old yeah. to like an 11-year-old. Yeah. Know? Well, maybe he was or she were was starting to get worried about the draft. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so here's a couple of stories I wanted to tell about Hitchcock. Are you familiar with the story from his childhood about uh, when he was five years old, kind of the formative uh, thing that happened to him? Yeah. Okay, you'll enjoy this then. So he was about five years old, living in England, and his father sent him to the local police station with a note. And (laughs) he said, give this to the person in charge at the police station. So Alfred Hitchcock handed the note to the police captain who read it and nodded. And then he escorted the young Alfred to a jail cell and locked him up. And then he said, this is what happens to boys who are naughty. And he left him there for a while. And Hitchcock didn't know. And he never knew for the rest of his life, whether he was being punished for something he had done, or if it was just a, a parenting thing, just a warning to make sure he understood, you know, the consequences of being bad. And it's really, I mean, it's just a horrible thing to do to a kid. I mean, his father really should have been locked up for doing that. It's just a, it's, it's abuse. I don't think you could put it any other way than the traumatization of a child. I guess we'll, we'll maybe chalk it up to it being a different era. But anyway, as an artist, I mean, Hitchcock had this for the rest of his life. He was afraid of police. He was afraid of authority. And he was really afraid of being accused of something and not knowing why and the suspicion. And it you, you see that running through all of his films. I think it's, I think he was able yeah. to tap into that. It was very deep in him. And it, it, you know, over and over in his films, there are people who are wrongly accused and people who don't recognize, who aren't recognized by people. And I don't think anyone was ever better at putting us in the shoes of somebody who's been falsely accused or 
unfairly suspected of something. Yeah, that's a crazy story. I mean, what a so was it a punishment for something that he never knew? Uh, he, he never knew. Yeah, and I guess you know well, he never asked his father. I <laughs> I don't know if he ever raised it again with his father, but you'd think that uh, as an adult, or I, I'm not sure when his father died. His father might have died when Hitchcock was young, actually, but he might have asked his mother, uh, mm-hmm. and he you would think he would want to know what it was for, but maybe it was too painful for him ever to raise it with his parents, or maybe they didn't have that kind of relationship where he could ask his, his parents about it, and, and maybe he just didn't want to know. Maybe he was worried that he had, he'd find out that he had done something wrong that he couldn't remember, he had blocked out, and he didn't want to know that about himself, or... Who knows? But it's it seems like given that he what was current at the time, especially of psychoanalysis, you'd think he would want to know and trace that story back a little bit to see if he had done something that he was being punished for. But he never knew for for his entire life. It's like the opening of a Hitchcock film. Yeah. (laughs) So the second story is a story he told. And this is something that I return to again and again as I'm thinking through stories and as I'm when I used to teach uh, creative writing and look at stories and see how they were put together and how they worked. And when I try to to figure that out now, when I'm looking at uh, either stories that are unsuccessful or stories that are successful, is his famous anecdote about uh, where he drew the distinction between surprise and suspense. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but just in case someone isn't familiar with it, it's the example he gives is a bomb under the table. And he says, you could show this family having dinner for 10 minutes and they could have this beautiful dinner, have this conversation, everything could be sailing along. And then all of a sudden a bomb goes off and the kitchen is in, you know, the the dining room is in ruins and the audience would be shocked and they would feel it. They would feel something. They would feel the surprise that they had been watching this, what seemed like a normal dinner. And then all of a sudden this bomb had gone off. But what Hitchcock preferred was Mm -hmm. to show the bomb under the table and you clue the audience in. And then you have the next 10 minutes where you're doing the same thing. You're just showing the family having dinner, talking, but the audience is completely engaged in a different way. They're not just relaxed watching the people uh, Mm -hmm. having dinner. They're thinking, oh my God, how can you be talking about that when the bomb is ticking? The bomb's going to go off at any moment. And And that's the experience that he wanted the audience to have is for 10 minutes, they couldn't take their eyes off the screen. And some of the best movies that I have on my list are really kind of like that. For almost two hours, you're completely engaged because you know enough. The audience knows enough about the dilemma and about what the person is trying to achieve or trying to get that the suspense is just ratcheted up and it's it's seamless. The movie just flies by as you're engaged in this problem along with the protagonist. Yeah, I mean the the that it definitely adds when the audience knows something the character doesn't. I yeah. mean that's you know cuz the other way around it's it's very cheap. The it's like ta-da, you should you you should feel that and you you don't feel it if if it just comes all of a sudden. You need that you need that buildup. Yeah. Or even if it's uh, even if it's something the character knows, you could have another example. I think that Hitchcock gave was a person who gets in a car. You could show a person in a car driving fast and mm-hmm. you would sort of feel like, oh, he's really trying to get somewhere. You could have the same exact footage, but you start the scene with the guy 
you know, running toward the car, looking at his watch and then yelling back at his wife, I'm never going to make this plane. And, yeah. you know, by pulling him in, then all of a sudden you're right there with him thinking, oh, his plane's leaving. He's He's got this important plane to catch, but he's way behind. And just that little bit of information can be crucial in a scene that otherwise might be interesting, but not very engaging and a scene that feels crucial. Yeah. Okay. So let's do our draft. Hitchcock made 52 movies. Uh, we are going to pick out our top 10. I don't think I've seen all 50. I know I haven't seen all 52. I've seen, uh, <laughs> I didn't count them up, but it's probably in the, in the twenties or thirties is my guess. As always, I will let you choose first. So the greatest Hitchcock films, what is your number one? Um, I'm going with rare window. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's funny. Cause I was saying how literature, how film is not literature. Yeah. Um, four out of my top five picks are Hitchcock films based on stories. Yeah. That seemed to so. be his, the way he was, when he started really cranking them out, he seemed to take slim novels or short stories and acquire them and, and uh, adapt them and make them his own, but starting with kind of a source material, usually some schlock book or some, some cheap uh, dime store novel. Yeah, so Rear Window is based on Cornell Wood, Woolrich's 1942 short story, so that's 13 years before the movie. Mm. It had to be murder. I've never heard of Cornell Woolrich, and um, right. I, I just I just think it's a perfect film. I think yeah. you you have um, Grace Kelly. Yeah. Um, the James Jimmy Stewart character could have been played by someone else, possibly, but I think Grace Kelly could only this character could have been played played by Grace Kelly, and yep. you know the whole class conflict, the uptown girl the fashion society girl and this gritty downtown guy. Yep. I think um, he added that. Uh, I think, I oh, think that, that was an element that he added. Yeah. Uh, and he accentuated it because once he knew Grace Kelly was going to be the, uh, the leading lady because he knew that that would be, that she would be perfect for that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, we may talk about plot twists and plot revelations, so we should warn our listeners. But um, I think Rear Window, it, you know, just what you were talking about, the audience knowing what the characters don't. There's a great scene where, you, you know, without giving too, way too much, Grace Kelly is in the the apartment of the suspected killer and the audience and Jimmy mm. Stewart are looking yeah. through binoculars from an opposite building and they can both see that the suspect is coming in through the apartment and Grace Kelly is not aware of it. Right. Yeah. So let's, we should probably do this for each of these. I think most of our listeners will be familiar, but Rear Window, 1954, it is about a photographer who has broken his leg. He's sort of an action photographer. He's broken his leg. He's stuck in his apartment. He has nothing to do all day but look out his window onto the apartment building that's facing him. And then he kind of inhabits the lives of those people. There's a dancer called Miss Torso and there's a, a lonely hearts woman and there's a newly married couple. And you kind of see a little bit of little vignettes of each of these people. Uh, and then he sees in one apartment, what appears to be a mysterious disappearance of a man's wife and he starts to put together things he has seen before, and he suspects them. 
him of murder, but he is disbelieved by his 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 girlfriend and his he has a friend who's a police uh, detective who also disbelieve they think he's sort of imagining things so that's the plot of the movie you know everybody kind of knows that the the guy that he suspects of murder looks familiar to people he's raymond burr who played perry mason but did you know do you remember the songwriter in the in one of the apartments oh the pianist yeah do you know who that is no it is ross bagdasarian who is the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> a little bit of uh, trivia there. I agree with you that Grace Kelly really kind of makes the movie. Hitchcock loved working with Jimmy Stewart, at least when he was uh-huh. younger, at least in this film. Uh, he thought he was, he liked that he had this, the the pure American guy, the all-American, you know, look that he had and, and demeanor that he had. He, he also mm-hmm. thought he was workmanlike. And apparently the two of them communicated through wordless glances. They could just look <laughs> at each other and, and decide if the scene needed to be redone or not. And uh, the most direction Hitchcock would give is he would sometimes say the scene was tired, meaning the timing was off. They didn't it didn't quite snap the way he wanted the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thelma Ritter, who is also good in this, she's the the housekeeper nurse, I guess, who's taking care of. Jimmy Stewart, while he's got this broken leg, she said about Hitchcock, if you did something he liked, he said nothing. If you did something he didn't, if you did something he didn't like, he looked like he wanted to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that's the direction. I saw this thing when I was in Chicago, I went through this Hitchcock phase. And back then it was hard to find a lot of things on uh, video. We didn't have YouTube or anything like that. So I went to the Museum of Broadcasting in Chicago. And I uh-huh. checked out all these different, I used to just go there and hang out sometimes. And I would check out all these things that I had heard about, like the the very first episode of David Letterman and that kind of thing. And there was an interview with Hitchcock that I had read about and wanted to watch. So I, I can't remember uh, who the interviewer was. It was Mike Douglas or somebody. And they were saying to him, they were quoting him and they said, you've been quoted as saying that actors were like cattle. And Hitchcock nodded, and you know that was sort of his view of them. He did, he did so many storyboards, and he had everything so scripted out that by the time the actors came in, Hitchcock just wanted them to do what he was already expecting them to do. You know, he wasn't looking for a lot of genius to be added or accidental lines or improv lines or anything. He wanted them to just hit their marks, deliver the lines, give the good performance, and stay out of his way. And and so they were like cattle that he was bossing around. And the interviewer said, now you've worked with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman and Grace Kelly. How can you say that, that actors are like cattle when you've worked with, you know, Hollywood's luminaries like that? And Hitchcock said, well, some of them are nice cattle. <laughs> <laughs> So let's see. I had Rear Window as number two, but I wrote down uh, this might be my favorite. I remember seeing it in the theater. My parents took me. There was a a little renaissance or a little revival of Hitchcock films in 1984 where there were five lost Hitchcock classics where Uh they they hadn't been shown in theaters for years because of some kind of uh, dispute over the, the music or something. And they uh they released them in 1984 and so i was a, a young 
teenager, I guess. And my parents uh, took me to see a, a few of them. And this was this was one of the ones I saw, and it was uh, I loved it. It was it, it struck me right away. Yeah, I mean, it's it it is so tightly plotted. It's almost G-rated in a way. Mm-hmm. It's um, yep. Yeah, I just watched it with my kids, and there was no yeah. uh, there. There's some innuendo, but it it really is. There's nothing that you couldn't uh, show even a a toddler. You know, it was everything is everything is pretty tame and mild. And when it when it we finished, they were both astounded. Like the movie still held up even for their generation, which is they're very impatient and they need to be entertained and everything. But they were riveted by the movie. And when it was over, my older son just mm-hmm. cried out and he said that was such a great movie <laughs> <laughs> i think it's it's got a kind of timelessness to it yeah and it, at the time it was the biggest set that was ever constructed i mean a, a big part of this is how well the set works for what the for telling the story but they actually built a a whole six-story um facade and and all of the apartments inside had running water i think uh I think the bathrooms worked and everything. Like they really, they really built the thing. <laughs> so, if it was your number two, what was your number one? Okay, well, for number one, I took Vertigo. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, which I took it first, even though I did think Rear Window is probably my favorite one to watch. But I think Vertigo is the richest and and maybe Hitchcock's best. It's such a masterpiece. It's the story. This was from 1958. The story is Jimmy Stewart. It's Jimmy Stewart again. He was a retired police detective hired by a man to follow the man's wife. And when she jumps off of a bell tower, uh, Jimmy Stewart kind of has this crisis and he decides to remake a woman in her image. And it's such a good movie. It's set in San Francisco. It's got beautiful colors. And it's really psychologically deep. And what I think gave why i gave this kind of the number one the first thing Mm -hmm. is it's hitchcock at the height of his powers he's every shot is so well composed and every scene and every sequence there's you could spend a whole day watching on youtube uh breakdowns of these shots and and people who are pointing out things that hitchcock did and i don't mean just little easter eggs like oh look here's a here's a photo in this in this scene or that scene or something. And here's a, here's a neat little, uh, you know, inclusion of some knickknack or something like that. I mean, where they're talking about things like the way he's moving the camera and the way he's placing the actors and the way he's arranged the furniture so that you can tell when an actor is feeling insecure or when an actor is, when one character is, uh, dominating another one, the way that the scene is shot will reflect that. And and it also has the famous camera maneuver, which has now become pretty commonplace, but it was used for the first time in this movie. The technology had developed, and it's the sometimes it's called the Zolly, where you push the camera in and you zoom out the lens at the same time, or you can do it vice versa. And it changes the background, and it disorients the viewer Almost huh. subconsciously, because you're you're focused on the same thing, but the background is changing because you're the angle of the lens is changing. And uh, according to Hitchcock, it was inspired by an episode where he fainted at a party. <laughs> and I guess what he means is he 
he was either falling forwards and looking at something or falling backwards and looking at something. And his eyes were doing the zooming, but he realized, you know, if, if he could do that with a camera, uh, the effect that it would have would be similar to that fainting feeling. And it's also, it's often credited to a cameraman on Vertigo for inventing it. But I, I heard that Hitchcock had the idea for it like 10 years before, but they just didn't have the technology that would enable it to happen. But you see it now all the time. It's in Jaws on the beach. You see it in Goodfellas, that scene where you know De Niro's going to kill the guy. And there's a lot of uh, examples of it as, a, as a, a, a technique, but it's sometimes it's called the Vertigo shot. Wow, I didn't know that. So the other big thing about this movie, which I think really digs into Hitchcock and, and who he who he was and sort of him as an artist, he had these Hitchcock blondes. We've already seen two of them with Grace Kelly, who was, I think, kind of the, the ultimate Hitchcock blonde. Uh, mm-hmm. This one has Kim Novak, who's another one of these famous blondes. He didn't he that was his preferred type. He he didn't mm-hmm. want the. You know, the other type at the time would be a Sophia Loren or sort of a, a a lusty Spanish woman. And and Hitchcock said, you know, for him, the what he found most erotic was the icy, buttoned up, you know, uh, blonde hair pulled back tight and mm-hmm. perfectly made up. It has this exterior and you have to imagine all of the sexuality underneath. You have to... Imagine that under this frozen sea surface, there's this churning sea of sexuality, that that to him was more sexy than cleavage or a, a dress that shows a lot of leg or something like that. And and what's interesting about this is... I mean, what a theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what's interesting about that, well, he said that. I think that was in his interview with Truffaut, that that was his... His view of that was why he had these blondes in there. But what's so interesting about Vertigo is Jimmy Stewart is really getting carried away. uh, And I mean, the character is really getting carried away, making this woman look the way he wants. And he's Mm -hmm. saying, you know, no, your hair, it has to be like this. Can't you change it? Can't you, you know, and here's, here's the clothes I want you to wear. Can't you change it? And a lot of people have pointed out that this was very similar to what Hitchcock was doing with these actresses, that he was remaking them and and sort of forcing them to look the way he wanted, to appear the way he wanted, to be what he was hoping them to be. And when you watch the movie with that in mind, that Hitchcock was digging into the downside or the, the creepiness of the way that he was inflicting his... Um, his preferences and and his control that he was asserting over these actresses, it gives it a a real uh, uh, autobiographical element that isn't that often isn't really there in Hitchcock, where he's when he's doing these spy movies and stuff, where you know that he's doing more entertainment. Wow, he seems like he he was working on some issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it it took sort of an ugly turn. I'll. I'll wait. I'll either tell the story at the end or I'll wait until you select the movie to, to talk about the ugly turn. But there there was an even uglier side, but it, it happened after uh, Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Our first two movies, I had those as one and two, or you, you chose Rear Window, but I had that as two. I had Vertigo as one. What did you have as your number two? All right. So I, I've got a surprise number two. Um, it's To Catch a Thief. Ah. <laughs> 
<laughs> because I, I, I just want to go into my, I have a bit of a Grace Kelly obsession. Let me, um, let me just so, give you the last sentence of my To Catch a Thief. I had that as number 10. <laughs> and then I wrote, I figured you'd take this one, Mike. It's the one I associate the most with you. So it has, you know, it's it's overseas. It's in France. The yet the Riviera. You get. Um, it's basically about the French resistance and um, the kind of the ne'er do well class. And um, it, it it's also based on a novel uh, by David Dodge, another person I've never heard of. But I think before I discovered uh, Playboy and whatever Meatballs and all those films. Um, I saw To Catch a Thief, and I, I I just couldn't believe how how Grace Kelly just dominated the film. Yeah. Like it's you know it, it really is in my mind. Um, you can see that Hitchcock just thought, uh, you know, the world of her. He was obsessed he was, with her. I mean, For little sure. things like she's eating fried chicken, and she just looks amazing. Yep, as she's eating cold fried chicken. yeah it's really it's also the one where you think uh you watch it and you think well no wonder she became a princess you you watch the movie and you think where is the prince to come and marry her she's too good for this world yeah i mean it's uh and i you know i like cary grant but you know i could kind of take him or leave him but yeah he's he's just perfect in this wearing his little scarf and ascot and um you know talking about his expense account and he he's very he's the definition of debonair in this film yeah and uh you know the plot of to catch a thief that's that's the one downside for me once you see it um it's kind of it's not much of a mystery if you're it's actually kind of predictable and I won't spoil it, but it's kind of predictable. But then when you've seen it once, it's it really is uh, one you're not going to forget. But it's still enjoyable. The dialogue is so good. The the settings are so good. The locations are so good. And the acting and just the stars. Just seeing Grace Kelly yeah. and, and Cary Grant. Cary Grant is perfect for this. You believe that he could... Uh, you completely believe that he would live in this world, and you believe that about her as well. I, I thought... There was a great quote Hitchcock had where, uh, you know, in the 60s, there were all of these slice of life movies and they would they were realistic and maybe they didn't have a lot of plot. They didn't have a a high concept uh, the way Hitchcock's movies did. And they maybe didn't have these glamorous settings or these superstar actors, but they were viewed as, you know, slice of life. And that was viewed as preferable. And Hitchcock said, some movies are slices of life. Mine are slices of cake, <laughs> and I think uh, I think to catch a thief is like the perfect slice of cake. That's the perfect Hitchcock slice of cake. I think it's also um, very rewatchable. Yes. I, I've seen it a number of times, and it, it's a it, it's a bit of eye candy. Yeah, yeah, when, the colors you, and it's you, yeah. I mean, it's it and it's. She, she, her character, I don't know that what, what happens in the novel, but her character is such a great character, very aggressive. The, the, the day they meet, um, he walks her to her hotel room and she kisses him on the lips. Yep. 
mean, that's like the opening. And her mother is hilarious. I forget who the mother is played by. Is that more? Is that Maureen Stapleton? Yeah. Uh, um, I know she's like a famous actress, but yeah, uh, I have forgotten who plays the mother. Yeah, um, she's good. It's also got the famous um, way of avoiding the censors, where they start their their amorous clinch, and then it shows <laughs> yeah. like a train going through a tunnel. Right. Oh, it wasn't Maureen Stapleton. It's Jesse Royce Landis. Okay. But. Yeah, the, the the scene where they're, they're she the, he's kind of eyeing her cleavage, but the the camera lighting is on her jewelry, and then right. as they kiss, there are fireworks that go off, yeah, right <laughs> in <Yeah>. the sky, <laughs> fireworks in the sky. Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, it, it's 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 very clean. Right. Um, okay. Uh, Great pick. I knew you were going to take that one. I thought you might actually take that number one. <laughs> so that's why I had it so low. I figured I'll let Mike take this one. So, Well, I did it strategically. I, I thought you'd pick Rear Window before to get the thief, which I was right about. So, Okay. So I will take then as my number two, another Cary Grant movie, North by Northwest. Which, okay, yeah. Uh, that, was my, that was my three. Yeah. And this... Um, this might be the one that I could rewatch the most, even more than Catch a Thief, I think. I love how Cary Grant is almost like a smarter James Bond. It's It feels like he's James Bond. He's so dapper and smooth, but he doesn't have the cartoonishness of James Bond with the, you know, his, his dialogue is not just puns and he doesn't have gadgets and stuff like that. But he, there's a scene where he goes into the Waldorf. Do you remember this? He's He goes into the Waldorf and he's... Um, mm-hmm. And he says he he calls downstairs and he wants to get his suit sponged and pressed. And mm-hmm. I just thought, how does he know that? Kind, how do you know that you can go into a hotel? It just seems so glamorous. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> that uh, you could go into and say, I just need my suit sponged and pressed. Just seemed uh, like the kind of thing that only Cary Grant would know. Uh, you know, I was probably watching the movie. I was probably wearing a Def Leppard T-shirt. And uh, here he is getting his his perfect suit sponged and pressed. It also, this is the one, it has that perfect Hitchcock scenario. What if you woke up and everyone thought you were someone else? And suddenly, you know, you're falsely accused of something and you have to go on the run. And you have to figure out uh, who the real murderer is because everyone else thinks the murderer is you. And it, it you know, it, it chases across New York. They they're in the country. They're in that crazy uh, car chase scene where he's been drugged, and uh, and then it it's got the uh, the incredibly famous crop duster scene where he's being he's being chased by a crop duster in in the the big open field, and then it culminates with the big another famous Mount Rushmore scene where he's they're climbing across Mount Rushmore, which is one of Hitchcock's favorite things to do. He's got a, he sets a, a, a chase scene in the Statue of Liberty. He's got in, when he was making films in England, they ran across the top of the British museum. And he seemed to, to love the idea of, of uh, putting things in familiar monuments or sort of settings that would be familiar to the viewers. But, would let them uh, see things in a new way. Yeah, and it has Eve Marie Saint, who yep. you know, 
speaking of other blondes i mean she i love her and on the waterfront and north by northwest is definitely kind of showcases her too yeah and carrie gray i read uh, it does it, she's yet another uh of hitchcock blonde so this is i mean the movies we've taken we should just pause here for a second and talk about the run that hitchcock was on i mean so yeah. Rear Window was this is all in the fifties. Rear right? Window was fifty four. Uh, yeah. Vertigo fifty eight. North by Northwest fifty nine. Um, we haven't talked about. Well, we talked about Psycho briefly. That was nineteen sixty. To Catch a Thief was nineteen fifty five. So it was like, like a it was like a masterpiece coming out one a year uh, for about five or six years, which is just uh, just incredible. I I love this story about uh, North Bay Northwest. Cary Grant thought that the movie was going to be a flop right up until it opened. Wow. And during the shooting, he kept complaining that he didn't understand what was happening. And he told his friends, uh, the script is terrible. I can't make head nor tail of it. And Hitchcock just smiled to himself, thinking that the confusion of the actor would, as it was playing across Cary Grant's face, would be perfect for the character because the character didn't know what was happening to him either. Wow. <laughs> Let's see. I had one other. Oh, this was, ugh. well, I guess two other things I have on North by Northwest. One is a little bit sad, which is when Hitchcock was making Vertigo with Jimmy Stewart, he was talking about the next movie he was planning to make, North by Northwest, and describing it. And Jimmy Stewart got really excited, and he assumed that Hitchcock wanted him to play the lead. And Hitchcock, Vertigo was the last time Jimmy Stewart was in a Hitchcock movie because Hitchcock thought Jimmy Stewart looked too old in Vertigo, and he blamed him for the movie not really being a a big hit at the box office. And so he never wanted to work with him again, even though uh, Cary Grant was actually five years older, but Hitchcock thought he, he looked younger and could play the, the leading man better in North by Northwest, but he didn't, it would be too awkward to tell Jimmy Stewart. No, actually I wasn't thinking of you. I was going to use Cary Grant. So he waited until Jimmy Stewart had signed up to uh, film anatomy of a murder and he waited until that movie started shooting, and then he rushed North by Northwest into production so that he could um, have sort of a graceful way to bow out of using Jimmy Stewart and say, oh, I'm sorry, you have this conflict that you can't get out of, so I'm going to have to use Cary Grant instead, when actually Cary Grant had been his original choice. Wow. One other thing I wanted to say about North by Northwest, which is at this point in his career, Alfred Hitchcock had complete creative control artistic mm -hmm. control and so he he had he planned out his movies on storyboards where every scene was already every shot of every scene was already planned out by him he knew just what he wanted it to look like and there is uh, apparently after he shot the footage for this there was and he he put it all together in the edit room and then uh he had to make cuts and apparently the cuts that were made to the film from the first uh, edit to the final product were less than eight feet of film, which is about five seconds of the movie. So his his storyboarding was so close to how he wanted it at the end that there was almost no editing that he needed to do after the footage was compiled, which kind of shows, I think, where Hitchcock was at this point in his career. He was so... 
he was kind of like Paul McCartney, you know, telling the the members of Wings what he want, <laughs> how he wanted the songs to sound. That it was, it was completely in his head. He knew exactly how to get the effect that he wanted. He just all he had to do was execute, and he had all the technical skill to be able to do it. That's amazing. Where are we with you now? Number three. Yeah, I I have to go with Psycho. I'm I'm gonna yep. do a pivot because I I wasn't gonna originally pick Psycho this high, but. I, I just, you know, the more I, I'm feeling all these memories of just how uh, overwhelmed I was by Psycho. Yeah. And I've only, I've seen so many movies multiple times, but I've only seen Psycho once and I'm kind of scared to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I, I, think I remember, that, I mean, without revealing anything, you know, yeah. there are certain images that you, you, you just can't forget. That's the thing. I mean, I mean, you know, and I don't want to spoil the ending. And once you know the ending, it's another one where the movie is a little bit lessened because there's a the shock of the ending is something that can never be recreated. But you can still find the movie to be completely scary yeah. and thrilling just because the individual scenes um, are really hard to watch. It's it's I, I remember when I was younger, they used to say the three scariest movies of all time were uh, The Exorcist, Psycho, and The Shining. Mm, yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, Psycho certainly hugely influential. The the shower scene, the the score, um, the, the, the character of Norman Bates. I mean, it's, it's an iconic movie. It's a good pick. I had it as number eight, but certainly worthy of being up there. A lot of people have it as number one or number two. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's it's this film that you and maybe this is the film that to me is the best case for film as literature mm. is it does something that constantly gets your mind going. Like mm. I don't think you can I don't think you can watch Psycho in a lazy state. Yeah. I think you're you're completely engaged. Your mind is racing trying to figure stuff out. And when it's over, it's this, you know, relief. Yeah. And a lot of films, I think when the movie's over, you just think like, well, what else should I watch? You're already onto something else. But Psycho, you're not. That that film stays with you. You need to recover. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, I, I remember I've never told anyone who hasn't seen Psycho the end. I've never felt the temptation to do it the way I do with other films. <laughs> like I just revealed to my daughter that in T2, <laughs> Arnie is a good guy. Right. <laughs> and I, right. I will never tell anyone the end of Psycho. You just have to, you don't deserve to know the ending if you haven't seen it. Yeah. I, so. I do think, uh, I think you're right. I think when North by Northwest is over, I always feel like going and exercising or something. My blood is racing and I'm all uh, excited. Psycho is one of those where you finish it and you think, I'm going to go turn on some lights in this house. And I'm (laughs) going to go. (laughs) Bolt my doors. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, You do not want to. It It is such an experience. It almost feels like a movie to endure in that way, but it's better yeah. than like Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and stuff like that. It is more engaging and more, um, I don't know, something about it. I feel like it's not just cheap thrills. It's, uh, they're earned. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. So what did you have as your number three? I feel like some of the top picks are disappearing. 
Yeah, they are. And, and then you get, once you get through the first tier, you know, then there's about 10 movies that, that could go in some of these slots. You know, a lot of my honorable mm-hmm. mentions are, could really be on my list as well. But I took, uh, this is a lot of people's favorite, actually. I took Notorious, ah. which is uh, 1946, yet another Cary Grant movie. This one has Ingrid Bergman, though, who is not quite a Hitchcock blonde. He was obsessed with Ingrid Bergman. And yeah. she she brings something that a lot of the uh, Hitchcock blondes really don't bring. She's she's a little more cunning, I think. Uh, she's got a little more depth to her, or at least depth. I don't know if the actresses would have had more depth in other movies, but the way Hitchcock portrays them, they're, they're kind of uh, on the surface. But she's a little more smoldering than some of the other women. It's such a great pair, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. So much star power. Uh, so much charisma and glamour, and she plays the daughter of a Nazi living in South America. Grant plays a government agent who recruits her as a spy. They fall in love, but she's forced to marry another man, Claude Rains, in order to get information. And you never really know who's on whose side. You know, you hope that Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman are on the same side and that they're going to win, but you don't really know exactly how they're going to do it. There's a moment... This was kind of a nice Hitchcock moment. There's a moment where he needs a close-up of a coffee cup for plot reasons. And he also wants Ingrid Bergman to be in the background. And he wants both of them to be in focus, which wasn't possible given the technology of camera lenses at the time. The two things, you know, they were different distances from the lens. You couldn't have them both in focus. So what he did was he had a giant coffee cup made and set it back farther. So that, <laughs> so that it would look like you were looking at the coffee cup close up, you know, with her in the background. But instead, they were actually at the same distance apart, but she was standing next to a giant coffee cup. That's the kind of thing Hitchcock, he, he does this, he does stuff like that all the time. And he, he talks a lot about these things with Truffaut. It's, if you haven't read that book, it's really worth reading the Hitchcock Truffaut interview. It's so much fun to read especially if you're a Hitchcock fan. But even if you're not much of a fan, I think you'd still enjoy it just because of the uh, descriptions Hitchcock gives of making movies and ways he solved little problems like this and and Truffaut being so delighted by stuff like that and so inquisitive and curious. He's such a fan of Hitchcock. But Hitchcock actually, he started as a uh, uh, making the, he was a painter and he got a job making the titles of silent movies when they the title cards. The way those worked back then was they would have little designs on them, you know, like there might be uh, a speeding train or a, a horse jumping over a fence or you know something that related a little bit to the dialogue that was going on. And he would draw those little pictures, and then he moved on to. Uh, actually writing some of the captions, and then he was working on sets, and pretty soon he was writing the stories for the whole movie, and he just kind of kept moving up until he was in charge of the whole thing, and he was he was the director. It wasn't an ambition that he had when he first started out, but I think it was something he was just good at every piece of it until finally he was put in charge of it, but at that point, he knew how to do most of the things. You know, he was he had already spent time uh, working in all the different areas of making films. Yeah, no, I, 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 I have read that book, and I, I, I second that recommendation of that book. It was made into a movie, too, which I've been sort of holding off on watching just because I know how much I'm going to enjoy it. I've been waiting until I, 
You really <laughs> need to pick me up. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about this Notorious is Hitchcock's wife, Alma, who uh, mm-hmm. I think she gets a lot of credit now, but she was really his other half in these movies. He he ran everything by her. They worked together on the stories. They went way back. They had worked early on on movies together. He trusted her judgment. He She was hugely important to his films, and she's often not credited. Some films, she gets a little bit of a credit for the story. But this was a movie where she saw her husband become so obsessed with Ingrid Bergman that she got jealous. But then she also got jealous because Hitchcock had so much uh, respect for the screenwriter, which kind of infringed on Alma's territory because she had been sort of his most important collaborator on the story. But suddenly he had this guy, uh, Ben Hecht, who was the screenwriter who wrote, he was a playwright who wrote The Front Page, which became His Girl Friday. And he wrote a lot of other movies as well. His his IMDb page is pretty impressive. But Hitchcock thought so highly of Ben Hecht that he was consulting him in the way that he used to consult Alma. And so apparently she was upset, and I think she was glad that they... Uh, Hitchcock and Ben Hecht. I don't think they ever worked together again for whatever reason, but this was a very successful collaboration. So let's move on. Now we are up to, is this your number four? Yeah, so I'm going back in time and I'm going to go with The Lady Vanishes. Ooh, yep. You know, I, I, I want to talk about how much, how what, what diverse styles Hitchcock, um, his films are and how, to me, Hitchcock was the first film, you know, auteur for me. I mean, before Truffaut or certainly before like Tarantino and, you know, more contemporaries. Like I, I think after The Lady Vanishes, I was willing to see him regardless of the subject of the film, regardless of when he made the film. Yeah. And you Truffaut know. gave him a lot of credit for that. And I think I think there was a period where Hitchcock wasn't viewed in that way, that he was viewed as more of a a commercial director or a director for hire. And it wasn't until maybe the 60s and 70s when he was starting to be discovered as, oh, no, he's actually a visionary and he's he's a, an artist or an auteur. Yeah, and, and Margaret Lockwood is great in, in that film. And the, the, only, uh, the only non-blonde in my uh, five picks. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> and, and and a great foil for the male lead. I forget who the. I mean, I, I think that that's that's something that is consistent with you know a lot of his films is the the level playing ground of the male and female. Yep, there was a a line where he says, "I just had the most idiotic idea," and she says, "I quite believe that." it is very rewatchable because of the dialogue it's kind of like to catch a thief or some of the other ones we've talked about it's it's a glamorous comedy thriller and the chemistry that the two leads have so that i don't think we've talked about the plot this is 1938 movie where uh it's a, a woman on a train who befriends an elderly woman and then has to help find her when she disappears and so to do that, she enlists the help of a musicologist. And the two, the the woman and the the man, the musicologist, are just they're just fun to watch. They're almost like two detectives who are uh, pitted, you know, thrown together in this caper. And uh it it moves very fast. 
Very smart directing. It's got intrigue, romance, clever twists, and trains. Another great thing for for Hitchcock movies, these these trains. I love The Lady Vanishes. That's a great pick. Truffaut, I think, said he watched it once a week. Something crazy <laughs> like that. I think he said it was his favorite movie. And Orson Welles wow. watched it 11 times. So wow. this Citizen King came out three years after The Lady Vanishes. I don't know if... Wells watched it 11 times before, like in the theater, or uh, if it was, if he just meant in his lifetime, I'm not sure. But it is uh, sort of a, a filmmaker's favorite. And another uh, film based on a novel, The Wheel Spins by Ethel White. Hmm. Yeah. Is that uh, one that you've read? No, I have not. <laughs> the only, the only, the only novel I've read that's made into a film that where everyone knows the film better than the novel is um, Die Hard by Roderick <laughs> Thorpe. You've mentioned I've, that. You mentioned that on our great adaptations episode. I've read that. I read that novel and <laughs> really enjoyed it. So. Uh, okay. Well, that was my number six, The Lady Vanishes. Uh, uh, so I am going to take, this is now my pick number four. Uh, I had this one as fifth on my list, Shadow of a Doubt, uh, 1943, which is the earliest American movie in my top 10. You know, I've never seen it. Oh, okay. So yeah. this is uh, the first one we can recommend it. to one another. You have to see it. So this is one of my favorite movie actors of all time, Joseph Cotton, who was in uh, Citizen Kane and The Third Man. He plays this guy, Uncle Charlie, who mm -hmm. returns to this small town to visit his family. And it's, uh, Hitchcock got uh, Thornton Wilder to write the screenplay because Hitchcock saw and admired the play Our Town. So he thought mm -hmm. Thornton Wilder would get the small town location right and the details of that right. But what Hitchcock wanted was more like the dark side of Our Town, that beneath the surface of all the good values and positive American virtues, there are dark currents that flow. And Hitchcock himself contributed a lot to the screenplay, and so did Alma. And Alma actually got a credit for this one, one of the few times that she did. But Hitchcock had some autobiographical details that he he inserted, and he really liked... This was his favorite film, and he really liked the way that it uh, kind of undermined what he viewed as nostalgia or sentimentality for this small-town life. So... This guy, Joseph Cotton, who is Uncle Charlie, returns to visit this family in a small town, and they start to suspect that he might be the person who's making all these news headlines, who has been marrying wealthy women. He finds mm -hmm. widows, and he marries these wealthy widows, and then he kills them for their money. Oof. And there's, <laughs> there's this great line of dialogue. <laughs> I'm going to read this um, because it's it's so good. Uh, so Uncle Charlie has this niece who um, she, her nickname is Charlie. She's named after her beloved uncle, but she's the one who begins to suspect him. And there's this scene where the mother is trying to get Uncle Charlie, who's been traveling around for a while, to deliver a speech to her club. Mm -hmm. And Uncle Uncle Charlie says, well, what am I going to talk about? Lecturers usually give them travel or current events, don't they? And the mother says, oh, Charles, not current events. We get current events. And Charlie says, what sort of an audience will it be? And she says, oh, women like myself, 
busy with our homes, most of us. And, and Char Uncle Charlie says, women keep busy in towns like this. In the cities, it's different. The cities are full of women, middle-aged widows, husbands dead, husbands who've spent their lives making fortunes, working and working. Then they die and leave their money to their wives, their silly wives. And what do the wives do, these useless women? You see them in the hotels, the best hotels, every day by the thousands, drinking the money, eating the money, losing the money at bridge, playing all day and all night, smelling of money, proud of their jewelry but of nothing else, horrible, faded, fat, greedy women. And then the niece, the niece says, they're alive, they're human beings. And Charlie says, are they? <laughs> and there's just this huge close-up on him and joseph cotton is such a uh he's like a jimmy stewart type you know you look at him and he, he's so innocent looking and and he almost has kind of a kind of babyish features and curly hair and but when he goes sinister in this movie there's a, a gigantic close-up of him on this uh when he says that, are they, and then he's, are they human or are they fat wheezing animals? Hmm? And he's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite a scene, but it is definitely uh, a fun one to watch. And um, another really fast one that just the, the suspense of it just carries you along. So we are now on our last, we're on our final round. So your number five pick. I'm going to go with the birds. Mm. I, Okay. Um, I probably saw the birds around the same time I saw Cujo and <laughs> Alice, sweet Alice. My 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 father used to rent movies from a video rental place near us, and in his mind, I don't know if all Koreans think this way, but he all films were either comedies or non comedies. Mm. So non comedies included action films, dramas, and horror films. Mm-hmm. So I think he rented the birds so we could all watch it together as a family and and scare the living daylights out of us. So it is scary. It's got a horrific. This is the film I was actually referring to when I said there was a real dark side to the Hitchcock Blondes, where uh -huh. he was horrible to Tippy Hedren. He was trying. He was upset that Grace Kelly had left him, and you know, left him in the sense of she wasn't going to act anymore and she was had become a princess and he was trying to make Tippy Hedren into Grace Kelly. The story is, according to her, I don't know why we wouldn't believe it, he had made some kind of advance and she had rejected him and he was so upset that he tortured her basically on set. He would have her in a cage and have these birds flying at her and even when she was uh, had had enough, he would push her beyond the limits and it's really the only, I mean, Hitchcock is such a avuncular figure it's the only real negative story about him that i've heard was uh his behavior on the set of the birds Oof. yeah that's <laughs> but <laughs> but that's your number five you're stuck with it oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't mean to be a downer i'm glad i'm going last but is there uh <laughs> I, I, I i i i think you know that film is hugely influential to the yeah. birds i think that the idea of a phenomenon that isn't quite explained but that afflicts a region or yeah. afflicts people you know that 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 formula has been copied many times now yeah. even though i think at this point the special effects i think they were striking for their time now i think with cgi and everything we you know it 
I think I don't think it holds up real well as far as the the realism of it. But you're right. Yeah. Just the idea that these birds are coming out of nowhere and for sort of no real explanation. There's all these books, especially um, British authors had all these books where it would be like the wind. And all of a sudden there's this great wind that's just blowing and it, it doesn't stop and nobody knows where it came from and everybody has to try to figure out how to deal with it. And there's it's, it's a real uh, vein of, I guess you'd call them, dystopian novels or um they're sort of science fiction slash dystopian stories uh but i think you're right it spawned a lot of imitators the birds yeah so is what what's your what's your last pick i feel like so there's so many there's so many movies left there are um (laughs) so i'll tell you um i'll tell you my honorable mentions then i'll tell you my pick Okay. And then I'll let you list any that I I didn't mention. So, let's see. So, here's some here's some that I wanted to pick but I uh I haven't. Um The Birds was one. Dial M for Murder is another one. Uh Strangers on a Train, which probably should have been in our top 10. It's got such a great setup. The people who are the strangers who meet on the train and they agree to kill one another's wives so they'd be above suspicion. And then it's got that carousel scene at the end. So surprised that didn't make our top 10, but it shows how good Hitchcock is, I guess, that it didn't. And then The Trouble with Harry, which I have a real soft spot for. It's not a lot of people's favorite, but it was the first one my parents let me watch. And I the first one I showed my kids, I think it's the one where... They bury a they they have a dead body and they're moving it around and they have to keep hiding it and everything and it's uh it's it's more of a comedy. It's got Shirley MacLaine in it. A couple I don't like that well, Spellbound and Frenzy. Uh and then one that's sort of a classic, Rebecca, which I had on my list. But the one I'm going to take for my last pick is the thirty nine steps. Mm. which I think is often credited it's nineteen thirty five. This is another one of his British movies. Uh, it's often credited as the first modern thriller where this one just puts its foot on the gas and never stops, which I actually have read the book that this one is based on, which was a classic book uh, by the Scottish writer John Buchan um, mm-hmm. called The 39 Steps. So this one also has a little bit of a literary pedigree. Do you recall what book that it was uh, cited in? No, I don't. I'll give you a hint that it's one of your favorite books and a book that we've discussed. Oh my God. Is it a Marikami book? No. Um, I don't know. It is Phoebe's favorite movie in The Catcher in the Rye. Oh. And Holden says her favorite movie is The 39 Steps. Though with Robert Donut, she knows the whole goddamn movie by heart because I've taken her to see it about 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he points out that when they go to the, the Scotch farmhouse where they're running away from the cops and all, Phoebe will say right out loud in the movie, right when the Scotch guy gets in the picture, says it, can you eat the herring? <laughs> she knows all the talk by heart. <laughs> but this has got that classic film scenario where the fugitives are handcuffed together. And they have to make their escape, which is another plot device that got used over and over where the, you know, it's in Midnight Run. It's in a million movies where the the heroes are handcuffed together for some reason. And Hitchcock actually had the actor and actress handcuffed together on the set and made them walk around like that. So they'd get used to the way the movements would be. So they didn't look awkward because 
as he reasoned uh, in real life, once you had done that for a few hours, maybe you'd look a little smoother than you would be if you were just handcuffing yourself right before the camera started rolling. Right. So they did make a lot of changes to the book. I was surprised by how different the book was. And apparently the author came to visit the set and he noted the changes that were being made as they went along. And, and Hitchcock at one point asked him what he thought of the movie. And he said, fascinating. I wonder how it will end. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, he really liked the movie. <laughs> uh, oh, and then I actually, I had one. Uh, so that was my number seven. Eight, uh-huh. I had Psycho. We've, we've named all the ones in my top ten, except for one I haven't mentioned yet, which is Rope, which I had as number nine, which is another movie I really love. Not Didn't love it enough to put it in my top five, but um, that's another Jimmy Stewart one. And I think that might be one. Did you say that that's one you haven't seen? Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, so that's another one. Maybe you can watch that one after. Uh, what was the other one I recommended? Oh, Shadow of a Doubt. Rope is the one where Jimmy Stewart... There's two guys who are like Leopold and Loeb, and they kill one of their classmates, their college students, who kill one of their classmates because they believe that they're superior beings who are above the law. But one right. guy starts to get a little bit jittery about it and, and a little bit anxious and is starting to worry that they're going to get caught. And the other one insists that they should put the body in a trunk invite the murdered boy's parents over for a dinner party, serve food off of the top of the trunk, and invite their old college professor who was sort of the smartest man they knew and who introduced them to all of these theories about uh, the Superman and and living beyond uh, normal restrictions and laws. And Jimmy Stewart plays that professor who comes in and starts to figure out that they're acting very strangely and it all... uh, it all centers around whether he's going to figure out what they've done and and uh, whether the boys are going to crack. It's famous uh, from a director's standpoint for Hitchcock was trying to make it seem as if it was all one shot uh, so that it was it feels like a play. It's all in one one or two rooms. And the um, the problem back then was that the film reel only allowed you to shoot for about 10 minutes and so uh, he would had to devise these ways where he would zoom in on a particular thing, like a black, you know, the back of somebody's dress or something, so that he could then zoom out and change the reel of film. But otherwise, it all happens, you know, it feels like it's happening in real time as they're at this dinner party, and it takes as long as the actual movie takes. Do they go into the background of Leopold and Loeb? I, I've never seen Rope. No, they don't. They don't mention Leopold and Loeb or, or talk to them. They're basically sort of just Leopold mm-hmm. and Loeb characters. Cause they, I mean, I think one of them, I forget if it's Leopold or Loeb, didn't one of them have like an IQ of like two ten and speak like, you know, 10 languages or something. Yeah. yeah. I've seen movies about the actual Leopold and Loeb and you know, they were, um, well, here we go. This will uh, close the circle. I forgot all about this until now. Uh, you probably know they went to our alma mater. Um, yeah. And do you remember where they lived? Pierce Tower. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't no. know. They lived in the dorm, uh, Hitchcock. 
<laughs> oh, is that still around, Hitchcock Snell? Because some of these yeah. dorms have been destroyed. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's still around, but it, that's where they lived. It was called Hitchcock. So it's oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that's probably where we should end. But I want to give you a chance to uh, to give me some honorable mentions or any closing thoughts. You know, you, you kind of covered all of mine, but I, I did want to say that um, if you know, I think you had asked me which film Hitchcock may have wished he had made. And yes. the, the film that really came to mind was Reservoir Dogs by Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> that I, oh. I, I think he would have, I think he would have appreciated two things, the, the use of violence and telling the story out of order. Hmm. He would have uh, enjoyed that. Yeah. And the dialogue, the snappy yeah. dialogue. Yeah. Interesting. You're, I bet you're you're a big Lee Marvin fan. Yeah. That, there's, some, there's some great dialogue in that. That feels a little edgier than Hitchcock, but I, I guess if Hitchcock like if he were you know, if he were of a, a generation or two handed down, I could see him that you know, he was pretty forward looking for his time, in other words. Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine the eighty or ninety year old Hitchcock uh cranking out reservoir dogs i had a <laughs> i had a couple of ideas both of them are movies that are often confused as being hitchcock movies that that people assume that they're hitchcock movies or remember them as hitchcock movies even though they aren't one of them is gaslight huh, which right. uh is the classic wife in distress movie it's also very suspenseful and very tense and it's so good you almost can't believe hitchcock didn't make it because it's it's so perfect for his kind of movie. And the other yeah. one is uh, witness for the prosecution, which is another one. It's got that light humor and those sort of comedic touches. Charles Lawton is a prosecutor. Marlena Dietrich is the woman accused. That's another, um, it feels so smart and so uh, well-paced that it seems like it's probably a Hitchcock movie. And Hitchcock often will say, yeah, everyone gives me credit for that one, but it's actually, the director was actually Billy Wilder. It's got so many Hitchcock touches that seem like it would be a movie that Hitchcock would have wished that he had directed. Okay, so that was fun. Boy, that flew by, just like a Hitchcock movie. And I, I think uh, now I'm going to go, uh, what are you going to watch next? A Shadow of a Doubt? Or maybe 39 Steps. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I think I might uh go rewatch uh To Catch a Thief. Oh yeah, do it. <laughs> I I have that. I I have much of that movie memorized. Yeah, well, oh. that's good. I remember you did uh 20 or 30 years ago, so I'm glad it's you've retained it. There's there's a lot of um good eye contact. I think, you know, when you rewatch that movie, you see you know, people talk about chemistry Grace Kelly and Cary Grant's chemistry in that film is is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really it's something. Okay. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. And now you should run out and watch one of your old favorites. Or discover some new ones. On a lazy Sunday afternoon with a nip in the air. Or maybe late at night when you're having trouble sleeping. Dive into one of these pictures. The Lady Vanishes, say. Or To Catch a Thief. 
or North by Northwest or Rear Window and just enjoy what it feels like to be alive and engaged and having the purest blend of art and entertainment washing over you. And then go out and do some conquering. First October and then the world. We'll have our Halloween episode next week. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.